As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The producers of this podcast... Recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. Troll Hunter award-winning Australian journalist Ginger Gorman embedded herself into the online communities of internet trolls who target and bully other users to find out just what makes them tick. She says the alleged gunman in Christchurch who carried out the Christchurch shootings fits the bill of a predator troll. Good morning. Good morning. What is a predator troll? I define it as essentially someone who's using the internet to do real-life harm to people. Basically, with the Christchurch killer, he was in online forums before the killing. I've seen a lot of his screenshots on 8chan. He was very clear about what he was going to do, and he was egged on by a whole cohort of white nationalist people who were also using that forum. And then he really co-opted the media to do his dirty work for him in a lot of ways, which is also a really common predator trolling tactic. Basically, you're trying to say when you've got online hate speech, that is not harmless. That is going to lead on to actual action. Yes. So, I mean, uh, my family fled the Holocaust, right? And the fact of the matter is that 
hate speech leads to real life harm. Like if you're going to dehumanise people, mm -hmm. it leads to violence. So we need to stop thinking in our head that this is virtual. It's very clear, like with the Christchurch killer, he said what he was going to do online. He was egged on by a cohort. He went and did it. And then that cohort helped spread that message of hatred. You know, and I mean, these are similar tactics that ISIS uses in terms of his video. That's a way to get copycat crimes going and so forth. So it's just completely naive to think that it's a fairyland online. It's not at all. There would be some people out there who would say that you have to protect free speech. That's that right. you should have to have an absolute um, uh, platform for free speech on the internet. What do you say to that? What I say is you can't say to me in the supermarket you would cut my uterus out and kill my children, but you do say it to me online. So basically the norms that exist offline have to exist online. None of us have absolute free speech. No one can bully you at work, harass you at work. They shouldn't be able to do it on the internet either. Ginger Gorman is an award-winning journalist. She's always had great passion for her work and she's been driven by equal parts creativity and curiosity. In 2011, those forces led her to a home in far north Queensland to record an interview with a family. It was meant to be a short radio piece about diverse families, but Ginger had no way of knowing that it would change her life and lead her into some of the darkest corners of the modern world. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. Ginger Gorman wrote a book called Troll Hunter about the very seriously dangerous people she discovered making threats online. She joins us to talk about it, beginning with the Christchurch Mosque Massacre. It happened in New Zealand, but he was an Australian, which didn't surprise me because in Australia, our leaders have been spouting these messages, which are very thinly veiled white supremacy for a decade. So that Well, I remember Bob Hawke, further to that point, uh, I'll never forget the, the, that amazing moment in, on an election night when John Howard had won an election again and the One Nation vote had fallen away. And somebody, somebody had said to Bob Hawke, to what do you attribute? the fall away in the One Nation vote. And Bob said, well, the LNP have adopted their policies. That's right. So I think we need to be very careful about where the Christchurch killer was getting the messages from. A lot of the research I've done in terms of predator trolling shows that trolls often take their cues from political leaders. So we cannot be amazed when our leaders are spouting these messages. They're spouting white supremacy all sorts of bigotry, misogyny and so forth, that this comes out in trolling. The reason I so strongly connected the Christchurch killer's behaviour to predator trolling was he used all the techniques that predator trolls use. So I had very closely analysed a lot of his online posts and things as that massacre became public. And the first thing I noticed, because the Predator Trolls sent me his manifesto in its entirety, I read it very closely and it contained lots and lots of the signaling that they use in those groups. So if you go onto these platforms like 4chan, nchan, Reddit, 8chan, the cesspits of the internet, this is the way that they talk to each other. So for example, there was a specific meme in there about a Navy SEAL. Now, to an outsider, that looks like an innocent, ridiculous kind of blah, blah, blah. But to me, I'm very familiar with that meme. And that is a meme that they use in those groups to signal to each other. And there was all kinds of that language embedded in there. Talk about white genocide and various other things, which was essentially telling that cohort that I am one of you. The other thing that was really, really poignant to me as a predator trolling expert is that he was using this tactic that we call media fuckery or the trolls call media fuckery. So what he did was he co-opted the media for his own ends on a huge scale. He managed to get that manifesto published, huge chunks of it, and in some cases, like the Daily Mail published that manifesto in its entirety. So what he was doing was actually co-opting the media for his own ends and bringing lots more people to that ideology. 
I had no idea that he that he was such a pivotal character in that scene. I had no idea that he wasn't a, a kind of a lone wolf lunatic. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? This kind of lone wolf idea. And we're both in the media. So I think in part, you know, we're responsible for this idea that these guys that commit these crimes are lone wolves. Actually, what happened, Michelle, was he went on to the forums before the massacre and he told his whole cohort what he was going to do. And they were egging him on and laughing as it was being broadcast live. And that same cohort captured the massacre and republished and republished that footage. So Facebook is also very culpable here. They left that footage up for 29 minutes, in which time trolls had time to copy that footage. And it's now everywhere. It's still everywhere, as is the manifesto. So to say that he was doing it alone is not true. And even in the broadcast, he was signaling to his cohort. So he played this Serbian music which is a white supremacist song about kebabs. And it seems to be very innocent, but it's not. It's actually, you know, a violent, dangerous song that's inciting slaughter. So there was all these messages hidden in what he was doing to his cohort. And that's why I cast him as a predator troll. And in fact, not very long after the massacre, I was invited to New Zealand to go and explain it in a way to the public there. It was horrendous, actually, you know, because I had written my book in the hope of stopping something like this. I already knew that there were terrorist trolls. There was a couple of them in my book, and I already knew that they were behaving like this. You know, like my book opens with a high school killer who is in these same cohorts and was plastering the same messages all over the internet. So I knew that this was possible. But, you know, I gave evidence to the Senate hearings here in Canberra in 2018 into cyberbullying. And at that time, I said, predator trolling is linked to terrorism. It's linked to murder. It's linked to stalking. It's linked to domestic violence. And like, I clearly remember some of the senators looking at me like I was out of my mind. But I already knew some of them were terrorists because there were two of them in my book. And I knew that this was possible. So when the Christchurch massacre happened, I literally cried. I went under my doona because people all over the world were messaging me. My book had been out six weeks and they were messaging me and they were saying, Ginger, have you seen this? Like, this is the exact kind of guy in your book and all the context is in your book. And it was, you know, and I think I hoped that the work I was doing would stop it, but obviously it didn't. Now, you mentioned that you never set out to become an expert on cyber hate or, <laughs> or I guess, on predator trolls. I mean, there's a lot there. Firstly, I'd never even heard the term predator trolling and you're saying it so confidently and so constantly. I guess that's part of being an expert on them. How did you become an expert if you never meant to be? And and what are they? What What is it that I don't know? How, how come I don't know this? <laughs> well, so... I'm going to answer that in two parts. So first of all, predator trolling is a term I actually made up because nobody was saying a term or describing it in a way that was as hateful and as extreme as I started to realize it was. So what we've got to understand about trolling is it's a spectrum of behavior. It's mild pranks at one end. So like Rick rolling where you accidentally click on a link and it's Rick Astley. That's hilarious, right? That doesn't hurt anybody. And we've all been Rick rolled at some stage. And in fact, Rick Astley credits Rick rolling for reviving his career. So this is like you click on a link, you think it's a scientific paper or something. And it's that song, never going to give you up. It's funny. But at the other end is extreme behavior that is linked to hate crimes like the Christchurch massacre. And nobody was saying it in a way that described how serious it was. Like if you are a woman, you are being stalked, abused, hounded, your life is being destroyed by your ex-partner online and you go down to the police station and you say, I'm being trolled. They just say, get off the internet, love. Ha ha ha. They don't realize how extreme it is. So I started to use that term in my book and I use it over and over and over again to mean people using online devices to do real life harm. And it might be one person or it might be a syndicate of trolls. So I started using it all the time and now I see it all in the headlines and stuff, you know, so it is being adopted and I'm glad because I needed something to describe 
the seriousness. Now, the second part of your question, like, Michelle, I can't even use my iPhone. You know, I just asked you before, how do I do a screenshot on my Mac? You know, I really, <laughs> yeah. and my now ex-husband just used to laugh at me. You know, I'm not a person that is interested in technology, particularly. I love but- it that is your now ex-husband. Is that part of it? <laughs> well, <laughs> I know I do uh, constantly drop my phone as well. I'm not someone that's very good at this, but what happened was really that basically an army of trolls came after me and my family in 2013. And so I learned firsthand what it means to be a cyber hate target. So I used to work for the ABC. I worked for the ABC for 14 years. In 2010, I was ABC Finals Drive presenter based in Cairns. And I wrote a series about human rights of LGBTIQ plus people. And these were really not today, tonight. You know, these were features about their lives and the way that those people were treated in that community, which is often very badly because it's quite a conservative community. And one of those stories was about this gay couple, Mark Newton and Peter Truong, who told me they had had this little boy via surrogacy in Russia. And so I went to their home. It was a beautiful home. He was a lovely child. For all intents and purposes, this seemed to be a lovely family. I moved back to Canberra after that maternity stint. You know, I was just filling in for someone was done. And then I had my second baby. And when I was on maternity leave with my second baby in 2013, those two men were arrested in the United States and convicted as members of an international pedophile ring. They did not have that child via surrogacy in Russia. He was purchased from his Russian mother. He was not a relative of either man. And he was horrendously sexually abused by those men and by other pedophiles around the globe from the time he was two weeks old. That's an awful situation for you to have been in in that moment, but also to know that you have been in their home and and met the child. That's a horrible thing to happen. I mean, Michelle, you can't even really, as a mum, wrap your head around that. Like, I still think about that child all the time and wonder, you know, how he is. I do know he's safe. I do know he's safe and that he has ongoing support and psychological care, but I just don't know how his life will turn out. And sort of knowing that if you knew what he was going through, you could have had an intervention point. But those two men had no criminal records. He was They were found accidentally by New Zealand police in another investigation. It turned out to be a huge international sting. So when those two men left Cairns, they went to America. One of them was an American citizen with the boy, essentially to abuse him on a family holiday in averted commas. Then Australian police swooped in. They went through the home in Cairns. They found all the material and that how they charged and convicted them. And they're both in prison now in the United States. And actually, there was a very good four corners done about that investigation. But what happened to me was that the minute those men were charged, basically conservatives in the United States got hold of that story, particularly a man called Robert Stacey McCain. He was a very popular blogger and conservative journalist there. And he started to write these blog posts about me because the stories that I had written were still online. So he found them. He started to tell people to shame me and was writing these horrible posts suggesting that I was culpable basically for the crimes against that child. And that's what happened. His followers did go out to shame me. And so I was really hunted online then, which is what happens to a lot of cyber hate targets. And The two things that I remember so clearly about that time was firstly getting a death threat, which is incredibly common, especially against female journalists now, but I got this death threat saying your life is over. And then you know how I said I wasn't techie? Well, my tweets were geolocated. So you could basically click on my house on Google Maps and see like where we lived. Yes. Yeah, I did that in the earliest days of Twitter somebody sent me a message saying that. Another tweeter kindly said, hey, your geo, whatever it is, we can all see where you live. Yeah. It's incredible because who knew? And, you know, workplaces like the ABC and other media outlets, athletes, politicians, we all have to be online for our work. And a lot of social media policies 
force you to do that if you work for a company, but there's no protections for you and no training often. And this is still the case. So the ABC really encouraged us to be online, but there was no training. So I had no idea. Well, not only that, I was in a position where I was hired to be this person who shared my opinions. Michelle, can you say something about this story? Michelle, can you come back from this story and say something, say something? And then though, when I was trolled for weeks after that, for saying something or sharing my opinion about something, no support. No backup from anyone about that. No, not even a phone call. How are you going with all that hate you're copying about that thing we asked you to say? Sometimes they had written it. Sometimes they had told me what to say. So there's there's no kind of duty of care. I don't think anyone feels any duty of care for your online life that they require you to have in support of their product. Absolutely. And, you know, I have been saying over and over again for years to anyone who will listen to me, this is an occupational health and safety issue. Absolutely. You know, like it is no different from sending a builder onto a building site with no safety equipment, no training, and then being amazed when they get really harmed or killed. So, and actually there's a lawyer I've interviewed previously called Roger Blow and he's a commercial litigator and a social media expert and he said this is a freight train coming for companies because they're going to get sued for trauma and they are going to lose because if someone like me does an injury to myself I mean just to give you an idea of the scale of it it was so terrifying so think about this my house is geolocated I get a death threat then the other thing my then husband found was a photo of our family on a fascist website with all kinds of threatening comments underneath it and my family fled the holocaust a number of my family members died in the holocaust so these two things together were so terrifying and I just remember like literally lying in bed in a cold sweat, in cold fear, could hear my little babies asleep in the next room, my two little girls breathing, you know, that sweet little sleepy breathing they do and thinking, did I just put my kids' lives in danger because of my job as a journalist? And no one could tell me, like I literally rang the police and they said, stay off the internet, love. And then I rang my boss at the ABC and he said, go to the employee assistance program. And I was thinking, no, you F with, like, I don't need a psychologist. I need to know if someone's going to kill my kids, you know? Like, what is the level of the threat here? What year was this? So this was 2013. But I mean, this is still happening. Like there's an Indian journalist in my book who was murdered because of her reporting. What I'm saying is maybe this was a bit early. I'm saying, do you think that now it would be taken more seriously? I'm imagining the movies about journalists and when they get a rock through their window, it feels like it's taken seriously. Their editor goes, oh God, okay, yes, you're being targeted for your work. We're taking it seriously. We're assisting you. Do you think 2013 was too early? I think it is changing because we've seen how serious it can be. And without being up myself, I know that the book has had a part to play in terms of changing the conversation. Like, for example, we're about to have new legislation go through the Senate that is enhancing the Online Safety Act to protect adults. And public servants have written to me and told me that it's in part because of my book. I think that we did not understand how real life online stuff could get. So like, You know, there's an example in my book where the journalist Sherelle Moody, she's amazing. She campaigns against gendered violence. Um, Her family was subject to a lot of gendered violence from her stepfather. And so she's really passionate about this. Now, the online hate she gets is so extreme, but I interviewed her for the book about online misogyny. And then at one point, like in the process of writing the book, she writes to me and says, I'm getting all these threats saying someone's going to kill my horse. And then, you know, two days later, she wrote to me and said, Frank, her horse had been found dead. Oh, no. So we've got to understand that there's not really a separation between online and offline. And I think this is changing. We are seeing this change. So... Very recently, I've seen some great responses. So in Victoria, for example, you know when Catherine Devney said all that stuff about Anzac Day? Like, okay, rightly or wrongly, whatever you think about those comments, just put that aside for a sec. She had these threats. She was doxxed, so all her personal information was put online. She had these really terrifying men, right-wing men, turn up to her house in the middle of the night. Her kid opened the door. Like, can you imagine the terror of that far out? But the Victorian counterterrorism police responded straight away. So they were amazing. So I think it's changing. Yeah. 
and police are starting to pay attention to this. And also the social media companies, they've been so slow to act, but they are starting to act on this because they have to. Like people are getting killed because of what's happening on their sites. Yes, I, I think we are starting to realise how seriously people take their online lives because it is crazy, but that doesn't mean it isn't true. That's right. And I mean, you know yourself when it happens to you, it's absolutely terrifying. Well, I'm not online really anymore. Be- because of that? Yeah, absolutely. When I started to be approached in my real life at my local shops because of an interview with Margaret Court, <laughs> I was like, oh, Jesus Christ this is crazy. You know, this is weird. And, you know, it's particularly women in public life. It doesn't, it's not exclusively women, like men and women do get attacked online at very high rates. So 44% of Australian women, 39% of Australian men have experienced some online harassment. But women get attacked in ways that are more violent, more sexual and more extreme. Mm -hmm. And it just does them more damage because of that, you know. And around the world now we're seeing UNESCO and the United Nations very worried about female journalists being silenced, being driven offline, and they're seeing it as a democratic threat. The other thing I found too, though, is that the mainstream media definitely encourages it. They would print a story about me being trolled when I really hadn't been but they would then create a trolling. They would create a sort of swarm of trolling where people who weren't following me, who didn't know who I was, would come days after I had said something on the project, for example. Three days later, I would suddenly get this onslaught of tens of thousands of people sending me hate and threats and all sorts of things because it had been printed on news.com.au or whatever. It's so upsetting to hear you say that because also while you're saying that, I'm thinking of every other female journalist I know that this is happening to and that it's systematic. So if we're all silenced and we're all driven out of our jobs, you know, it's a democratic threat. Like I have never had a response to my work, like when I spoke to Commonwealth Women's Parliamentarians Conference in Adelaide. So these are women from all sides of politics and the horror stories they were telling me about the way that they are being stalked and harassed online. I mean, in some cases, I was terrified for them. One woman in particular, I said to her, this is the same situation in which Joe Cox, the politician in the UK was shot. Like you have a fixated person, you need to go to the police. So we're talking about rape threats against their children and things like this is not a tenable situation for women in public life. And it's basically now around the world starting to be seen as a democratic threat. I'm really worried about it. I'm worried about female athletes. You know, you saw what happened with Taylor Harris, the AFLW player, that's happening to sports umpires, sports writers who are women, sports players who are women. Like it's just not okay, you know? No, it does make you want to shrink, you know, as powerful as you feel initially. It does sort of make you just want to hide, I think, and shrink away. Absolutely. What can you tell us about those boards that you were talking about early on, the 4chan, 8chan? Like what, what, What is all of that? Tell us about these communities. Where do they come from? Who are they? What are they? So, I mean, part of the problem about the internet is it's completely unregulated, right? So, and especially in the United States, the legislation there is such that they don't really have to have a duty of care to the public. So a lot of these websites are based in California and the laws there are such that they basically don't care they don't have to protect people. And this is incredibly problematic. Like just to go on a slight tangent, there are situations in Australia. So for example, the Northern Territory Police are quoted in my book talking about murder cases and things that they have not been able to prosecute because Facebook and other platforms won't give them information. As in like private messages. That's right. Like, so a lot of stuff is happening on these platforms uh, that is problematic. In terms of who is going on there and who is in these communities, there's a really interesting chapter in my book, which I think is almost the most important one in terms of understanding this behavior. So it's called The Internet Was My Parent. And 
What it describes is kids, little boys mainly, from kind of what we would in shorthand call white trash families, so very, very neglected backgrounds, left alone online from the time they're tiny, so completely unparented. And what they're doing is they're sitting on these platforms like Reddit, 4chan, 8chan that you were mentioning, and they are imbibing these ideologies of misogyny, bigotry, racism, and they're getting radicalized into predator trolling. Like I don't think we can be amazed that if you don't parent your kids and there's no adults around and you leave them sitting there on these forums, which are white supremacists, they get radicalized into predator trolling. And so they're very dangerous communities and I think they are not being watched because it's white supremacy. Like if these were Islamic communities where kids were getting radicalized, it's the same process. It's exactly the same. They, I mean, there's a really interesting part in there where one of the trolls who's incredibly bright, right, is super bright but very deprived, like from a really awful, neglected, violent upbringing. So violent, alcoholic mother, no father to speak of, completely left alone. And he said to me, you know, you grow up in emotional poverty and you go online and you find a group of people who've been treated how you've been treated and who who think how you think and you can go out with them to get the world back again. And so this is the other fascinating thing. Like when I was talking earlier about the Christchurch killer not being a lone wolf, these young men who are so angry and so bitter and so neglected find their tribes online. And what they do is create predator trolling syndicates. So the way that you can understand this is that they're like what are called in some states outlaw motorcycle gangs. So they have presidents, they have vice presidents, they have their own law, L-O-R-E, they have their own history. They often have names, these syndicates, and they will work together sometimes in raids with each other. They do jobs together, you know what I mean? They all know each other. They often swap syndicates and things. Like it's an actual culture, which I don't think we've understood until now. And you know what? It was so hard to understand. I couldn't even understand the language they were using. It's fascinating, isn't it? It's we are such a pack animal, aren't we? Like if we don't have family, we we go looking for something. Is it is it a football team? Is it a religion? Is it a motorcycle gang? Is it a four chan syndicate? It's almost like we can we can fall prey to anything. We need to be with others, and we need the approval of others. And I think. Even very damaged young men. I mean, I will say as well, more recently, I've come across trolls in other cohorts. Like I was interviewed for ABC Landline in 2019 about trolling between vegans and farmers. It was so extreme. It was unbelievable, but it was mostly women. It was mostly female producers and female targets. And it ended up with people losing businesses, animals being harmed, like all kinds of stuff was happening that was so violent and awful. And that was women. Now that is not a cohort I've got such deep expertise in because I wasn't embedded with them for six years, but I think that's emerging as well. So yeah, I I wouldn't, I'm also very cautious because although the cohort I know about is young white supremacist men, I think other cohorts are springing up as well. My kids talk a lot about the vegans on TikTok. They're very disturbed by the militant veganism that they see coming up. Yes, I think that's right. And the thing is with this, like we we are taking actions into our own hands, which I call digitalantism. And, you know, that is not a good idea. It is not the Old Testament. It's not where an eye for an eye, you know. We need to have structures in place that keep us safe offline and online. And I've talked a bit about the police. The police are very out of their depth. They are not funded or trained to deal with this properly. And that's the case around the world. You know, I mean, it's changing, but I really would love to point the finger right at those social media companies and ask, why the hell are they allowed to have products that are so unsafe? And it seems like they're getting less interested. And to point the finger at somebody, Mark Zuckerberg in particular seems to be more more hands off. It seems that he is less interested in intervening as the years go by. Absolutely. Because the thing is, no one is making them accountable. Like even when he's had to give evidence to Senate hearings in the United States, no one is making those companies accountable. The only country that's really done anything substantial is Germany. Yeah. So Germany has this really long law called the Netz Law. It's like 
got one of those 13 character long names, but basically they are allowed to charge social media companies 50,000 euros per post if cyber hate isn't taken down in 24 hours. And guess what? They're complying, (laughs) you know? So this is the thing, like we have not legislated to make the social media companies accountable. And I can't really understand why. Like if you think about if it was tobacco that's killing people, we legislate. You can't put a car on the road without seatbelts on it because people get killed. So why can you put Facebook Live on the market? Like I went to Facebook in 2018 and I said to them, Facebook Live is not safe. And they said, yes, it is. And then Christchurch massacre happened. And what's happened? Nothing. <laughs> like I just feel like they tink around the edges, but they don't fix cyber hate because it would interrupt their revenue model. In a cyber hate event, everyone goes onto their platforms, they make more money from advertising. So they don't want to keep us safe because it doesn't suit them. Thank you to patrons Beth Noble, Donna Pacha, Leia, like the princess, Prime, Charmaine Davis, Carmen and Danny Ray. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You talked a minute ago about talking to trolls. So you've interviewed these young men, these trolls. I mean, how, how did you go about that as a white woman from Australia? <laughs> How did you infiltrate their world? How did you gain their trust? And and what did you find when you were talking to them as individuals? That's so intriguing. The first thing I want to say, Michelle, is like, I did not understand how dangerous they were. I did not understand it was like the likes of the Christchurch killer I was going to be talking to. No, I think they're gamers. I, I would think to myself prior to that, these are just because we make fun of them, don't we? These are dudes who refuse to grow up sitting in their mum's basements or whatever, gaming. That's right. So the first time I went to meet the troll in my book who is called Mark, who is a psychopath and does get people killed, I did not understand who I was meeting. Like I literally went along with my tape recorder. I did not realise that I was going to be sitting opposite someone who was so dangerous And I remember when he started talking about it, I mean, like I hadn't even told my husband where I was going. I didn't tell anyone what I was doing because I thought they were jerks in their mum's basement, you know, just losers. 
And that deep feeling of discomfort kind of stayed with me through the whole process. So yeah, look, it was not what I expected and I would never do it again that way because it was so violent, that book. It gave me PTSD, you know. But so when I first put the call out, right, it was about 18 months after I had been really badly trolled. And like you're saying, I didn't think they were that dangerous. And I just put a call out online because I started to wonder like who would send someone they don't know a death threat. And lots of women I knew, like journalists in particular, were getting this kind of stuff like rape threats, death threats. And almost immediately I got these responses. And what I realized was they wanted to talk because if you think about who they are, they feel unheard. And it took a long time for me to wrap my head around this because they're like young white men who, as a left-wing feminist, you think are the people with the power in our community. But these are not people that feel like that. These are people that feel very disenfranchised. So here I was, right? If it was a dating app, I would be their hate match. (laughs) I'm a white feminist. So, so hated. I'm Jewish, hated. I was in a mixed race marriage, hated. I'm in a a journalist and they hate the media. Yeah. You know, so like I was literally all the things they hate. You're everything that's oppressing them (laughs) in their minds. Yeah, but you know, like. I just couldn't understand it, first of all. Like, why are they being so open? And it was because I really went in there to listen and I wanted to tell their story. So pretty quickly, these guys, and look, I spoke to lots and lots of them over a long period, but there was probably half a dozen that I spoke to sort of for five years or between one to five years. There was half a dozen of them I knew really well by the end of it. And they just trusted me because I just kept listening because I'm fed up with mainstream journalism. I'm fed up with that kind of false equivalence. I just wanted to actually know who are these guys and why are they doing it? Because I don't think we can fix it otherwise. I mean, listen, I have been criticized roundly by many journalists for this. Many journalists think that I dropped the tenets of traditional journalism. I got too close to them and so forth. But I don't think we'd get the answers we've got now. Like there's no way they would have told me about their childhoods and stuff if they hadn't got to know me so well and really trusted me. And so it was very a bizarre revelation where I realized that they actually feel oppressed and they feel unhoped. And the other thing was, I mean, the other reason they wanted to talk to me is because they wanted their history written down. So they have years and years of predator trolling history and law and they wanted it documented. So they are very proud of some of the things they've done, which is hard to wrap your head around as well. I mean, some of the things they've done as well are quite interesting. Not, I'm not talking about hurting people, but they have pranked the media in some ways on a huge scale and actually made some really interesting political points at various stages. And I found some of that really interesting. Like they're not stupid. They are planning this with very clear ideas of what they want as an outcome. Sometimes, like they will prank Wikipedia on a huge scale quite often. And they hate Wikipedia. They think it's left-wing, small-l liberal kind of junk and that it influences information access too much. And so they go out to kind of destroy it sometimes. It's clever. I don't agree with it, but it's clever. (laughs) It's undoubtedly clever. And this is sort of where we're at with the internet, isn't it? I often talk to my kids about this. They're 11 and they're endlessly amused by my telling of the invention of the internet, the early days of the internet, and how hopeful we were. Yes. I always say to them, you've got to understand, kids, we believed the internet was going to change the world for the better. We thought it was going to give everyone a voice. (laughs) It was going to be the ultimate freedom machine that was going to level the playing field. It was going to give everybody an opportunity and and a voice. How could we possibly have known that in 2021, still half the world would not have access to it? And actually, it was going to amplify the divisions. I mean, it's unbelievable. You're so right, though, because... I went to see Vince Cerf speak at the ANU, the Australian National University, right at the end of writing my manuscript. It must have been the end of 2018, I think. And he was one of the fathers of the internet. He actually created it, you know, for the US military. And he's standing up there on stage talking about this great hope and this great optimism for humanity. And I'm like, who are you effing kidding that if you give every sadist and psychopath on the planet access to the internet, that's all going to come out nicely? Like. I don't think 
It does seem really naive. And I mean, seems very naive now, doesn't look, it? Look, the e-safety commissioner, Julie Inman Grant, and I are very good friends, and she does not agree with me about this. But I think regulation is the only answer, really, because civil society has to exist online the way it exists offline. Like if you get punched at the IGA, you can call the cops and they'll come and you can feel assured that that will get sorted out somehow through the courts and, you know, there'll be charges and so forth. I'm not saying the justice system is perfect, but it's there and largely society stays civil because we rely on it. We believe in it. That doesn't exist online. So anyone can do anything and say anything and they are. Joe Rogan has spoken recently on his podcast about his fear of being silenced as a straight white man by woke culture. Let's have a quick listen to that. You can never be woke enough. That's the problem. It keeps going. It keeps right. going further and further and further down the line. And if you get that to the point where you capitulate, where you agree to all these demands, it will eventually get to straight white men are not allowed to talk. I reckon it takes a special kind of straight white male privilege to speak out on your podcast that has over 200 million downloads a month about your fear of being silenced. <laughs> what do you make of that, Ginger? It's fascinating. So there's a whole lot of stuff in my in my book about free speech, right? And these young white men are on and on about free speech and you see this in the right in Australia all the time. But isn't it interesting that the people whose speech is the most free are the most worried about it? Like what predator trolls do systematically is they police discourse. So they believe that they are at the top of the food chain and they police discourse to anyone they see is other. So the voices they are driving on the internet are disabled people. Uh, people of colour, particularly women of colour, but anyone of colour will do, people who are LGBTIQ+, any kind of minority groups, and on and on we go. So those are the people whose voices are being driven off the internet. And if you really go for the trolls, which I did sometimes in these conversations, and say, but you are actually depriving other people of free speech, they do not actually really have an answer for that. They say, well, you don't have to be on the internet. You know, get off the internet. I mean, which is the stupidest answer ever, really, because who can stay off the internet? No one. But also, I think we do ourselves a disservice because those on the ultra-conservative side, I feel like they, they stick together and support each other more than the rest of us do. I always felt like when I was being targeted, trolled, cancelled, whatever, nobody else on my side of the equation ever stood up for me. Whereas on the other side of the equation, when somebody is in trouble, everybody stands up for them and says, hey, what about their freedom of speech? The religious groups and the political groups. They all stick together very well on the other side there. There are whole books being written about that exact thing. There's an amazing book by Jeff Sparrow called Trigger Warnings about how the... Jeff Sparrow, fantastic. Yeah, you know, the the left is policing its own discourse to the point where it's helping to create the right. So that's a really important and interesting point, which we could probably do a whole separate podcast about. But one thing I would say that I've been doing recently is I've developed this really interesting bystander technique. And I used it recently for Brittany Higgins, who's a friend of mine, because the predator trolling against her is absolutely stomach turning and it's really impacting her. So can you talk to us about that, please? Because as I say, I'm not really on social media, so I'm not aware of it. No, well, I don't think she's made most of it public. I've been helping her more in a private capacity, but she has given me permission to talk about it. I mean, it's just a-holes writing this horrible stuff, saying you were drunk, you deserved it, you know, all this kind of stuff. But like accepting that she was sexually assaulted at Parliament House by a staffer, for the most part, so not not saying it never happened, but saying you deserved it because you were drunk. Well, there's people saying that. There's people saying it didn't happen. What evidence have you got, you know, um, and so forth. And then there's people going after her partner, calling him a rapist. Like it goes on and on and on. It's unbelievable. So I developed this bystander technique, which is quite hard to understand unless you see it written down. But basically what it is, is very similar to when we teach kids about bullying in the playground. We teach a bystanders to not stand by and watch, but to intervene. And so in the case of you being really badly trolled, I would step in 
and I name the problem and I say, Michelle is being trolled because of this. And then I give very clear instructions what I want people to do. And mainly what it is, is it's a huge groundswell of support for you. So I tell people to amplify your voice, retweet you, repost you, quote you. I tell people to privately message you and tell you you're fabulous. We love your work. You're brilliant. I tell people to report. So mass reporting signals to the social media companies to do something and it takes the onus off the victim. And then I tell people to use corrective speech back to the trolls. So not to be aggressive, but to correct them because that also gives the victim power. It's not so much going to change the trolls behavior, but it just is about putting you in a position where you feel loved and supported instead of attacked and alone. And also it's not creating a shit storm. No. That's great. No. So yeah, it's really interesting because I used that technique with Brittany recently and she got something like 60,000 impressions on that tweet and loads of support came to her in all different ways. I mean, I often say if you don't feel you can do it publicly because you don't want to be attacked, just private message the person. But then that technique, it was so interesting. It recently got mentioned by the safety commissioner in the Joint Intelligence and Security Committee as a possible technique to stop white supremacy and huge scale predator trolling. So it's quite interesting because we're now starting to realize that we can't just stand by and watch stuff happen. We have to be active participants in stopping it. And are you still in touch with any of the trolls you interviewed for your book? There is one troll who I made very good friends with who I do stay in touch with. And at the time I met him, he was president of quite a powerful trolling syndicate. And I didn't like him at all, actually, when I first met him. I didn't know that we would be in constant contact after that. He was very polite and very helpful, as well as being seemingly a horrible person. Not long after I did the interview with him, he had a number of people die in his life, which happens a lot in the trolling community. They take a lot of drugs and they're very damaged. So they, a lot of them die. So he kind of went through this huge period of grief and he just started talking to me all the time on the encrypted apps. And I guess we really became friends because of that. Like I ended up just treating him really like a human being. And he almost, his name is Sheep, and he's actually thanked at the back of my book in the credits because that's his online name. He's very easy to find if you want to find him like as his online name. I just couldn't have written that book without him because I literally asked him thousands and thousands and thousands of questions. Like, who is this person? How do they fit into this syndicate? Were they previously in this other syndicate? You know, just really stuff that was impossible to understand from the outside. And he actually turned out to be quite a lovely young man in the end of it. He had never done predator trolling, so he had never hurt anybody. He was more involved in a syndicate that pranked the media. So I didn't feel like I was compromising myself morally in that aspect. It was very interesting. Like he was pro-guns, pro-Trump, quite woman-hating when I met him. I don't think he's woman-hating anymore. He's actually doing really well and he's put himself through college and so forth. So I actually have a lot to thank him for in a kind of a way. Mark, on the other hand, you know, I don't want people to think you can get friendly with trolls and it's all going to work out fine. You know, he is a very damaged and very terrifying individual. For a long time, he would threaten me and I was genuinely scared of him. And like I wrote a piece in 2017 for Fairfax and there's a video with him that kind of went viral and... I just couldn't untangle myself because he was so threatening, you know, and I had this really weird cat and mouse kind of game with him because he would say, I'm going to fuck up your life. I know how to hurt you, which he did. But then he also would give me really important insights and information. And he also wanted a lot of what had happened written down. But yeah, it's probably the most uncomfortable relationship I've ever been in. And every time it would go quiet for a while and I'd feel really relieved and then he would pop up again. I thought that that would continue kind of in perpetuity, but he's been very quiet now for more than a year. So I don't poke that bear. But yeah, even Mark at the end, like when we'd been talking for years by that stage, after about five years, he would then occasionally, after threatening me and so forth, he'd send me a picture of his dog and stuff and say, oh, I just, you know, took my dog for a walk. I've just brushed him or whatever. And, you know, so even he became more human after all that contact. A number of them did become a lot kinder and a lot more human in that process. Not that I was trying to do psychotherapy on them, but 
it does show you that human kindness goes a long way, I think. Particularly if they're young, I guess, you know, five years is a long time in the life of a young person, isn't it? Yeah, especially if you're meeting them and they're in their early 20s, then by the time you stop talking to them, they're in their late 20s. I mean, there's one wonderful story that I tell sometimes when I am speaking in public because often when I'm speaking in public, people are not expecting this to be so violent and dangerous. And you can see them kind of leaning back in their chairs trying to get away from the horror of it because they were expecting this to be about a few mean things online and it's actually about the Christchurch shooting. So I often tell this story. One of the guys I met was an incel when I met him. So he was in that group of guys that call themselves involuntary celibates. They believe that you can use violence to get sex from women. They believe that they're owed sex. They're a horrible group of guys. And a lot of their chat logs in those groups are about, you know, how they're going to rape women and so forth. Just disgusting. Mm. But one of these guys, when I met him, so I was talking to him for about a year And by the end of the year, he said to me, you know, thank you so much, Ginger, because I no longer hate women. And he had been dating a woman and I think he was in quite a serious relationship. I did kind of think, oh, lucky her, you know, but, but he had changed. Well, people started to write to me when I would tell these stories and say that that's radical empathy. You know, that's where you go in, not trying to change anyone's mind, but instead of being partisan or aggressive, you're just really listening. I think that's what I did. I paid a price for it, Michelle. Like by the end of writing the book, I was really alcoholic and I have very bad PTSD because it was so violent. I'm just a fat mom in the suburbs wearing a headband trying to get to school pickup. I I was not expecting to spend five years of my life hanging out with white supremacists who kill people. Hanging out with very deeply (laughs) damaged young men is the fact of the matter. Like really and truly. It is. But And if you're an empathetic person, which you clearly are, I can understand how that would really play on you and would affect you very deeply. I mean, the thing is, people were getting shot in real time. You know, like I just wasn't, and people were dying. Like Jamie Cochran was a transgender woman who was head of one of these syndicates and she died of what seemed to be a drug overdose, it's be unclear, right before I was about to talk to her. You know, there was a high school shooter who was one of the admins that worked for Mark on his website. He did that shooting kind of in real time. And then I was in this position where Mark sent me the whole file on this kid because they keep files on each other. And I had every single detail about this high school shooter in New Mexico And I watched the press conferences live in New Mexico and the cops had no idea who he was. And I thought... And you had everything. Yeah. So I had to contact the AFP and say, I know this is a bit weird, but I've got a file that you need to give to the FBI. I mean, I'm just a journalist sitting in my office in Canberra, (laughs) you know. I mean, it's bonkers, really. The whole thing was bonkers. Thank you to our guest, Ginger Gorman. Her book is called Troll Hunter and it's available now. Thank you to patrons Georgia Ray, Emma Montford, Georgia Clark, Chantel, Joe Taylor and Fiona O'Leary. And thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.